What is up everyone? It is Bo here. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day. Today's episode is based off the practice problems on our website. So although it was made with video in mind, meaning that there are some diagrams and charts and photos uh, to describe some of the lesions and some of the pathology uh, through thorough descriptions of the questions, through reviewing all the answer choices and describing kind of what we're looking at, we hope that you, the listener, still finds a tremendous amount of value in these episodes. So let us know what you think. If you like these, if you don't, what would you prefer? This is always a fluid work in progress. So hope you guys have a fantastic day and enjoy the episode. What is up everyone? Welcome back to another video. Today we're going to cover the pediatrics quiz that can be found on our website buzzwordsmed.com. So for anyone that's new, you go to Ace the Boards on our website, you go down to Novel Podcasts, you can see the bingo and the brew review, we have practice exams, and this is where you would find the test. So you would click Step 2 Pediatrics and it would take you right here. Um, I've already let the timer kind of run its course, so we will no longer be timed just for this video review, but normally you'll have about 5 minutes for the 2021 questions. So, without further ado, let's begin. So. You have a child born via vaginal delivery complicated by shoulder dystocia. Which of the following below are risk factors for this event? Diabetes in mother? Yes. Having shoulder dystocia in previous pregnancies? Actually, yes. Multiparity? Yes. Meaning if you had twins or triplets. And then finally, fetal macrosomia? Of course. So, mothers that are diabetic have bigger babies. Fact. Having multiple kids at the same time increases your chances of shoulder dystocia. And of course, bigger babies, more likely to have shoulder dystocia. So all four of these would be the correct answer. Select below if the symptoms match the pathology. One, bloody stool and milk protein allergy. Do those two things go hand in hand? The answer is yes. If you have a milk protein allergy, you can often have bloody stool. Macroorchidism and fragile X syndrome, so essentially large testes and fragile X. Do those go hand in hand? Of course, so fragile X, remember you have the large ears, the large jaw, and the large testes. Bilious vomiting and pyloric stenosis, do these go hand in hand? Initially you'd say, yeah, of course, vomiting, but remember pyloric stenosis, just by its nature, being in the pylorus, would lead to non-bilious emesis. Projectile non-bilious emesis at that. So that would be the incorrect answer. And duodenal atresia and trisomy 21. Trisomy 21 is just a condition that we need to know so many different things about, one of them being increased chance of duodenal atresia. Anything else that you can think about? Right, Hirschsprung disease, ALL, early Alzheimer's, among other things. All right, next question. A newborn delivered at 35 weeks is tachypneic with intermittent DSATs. Chest x-ray significant for perihilar vascular congestion. His symptoms resolve within the next two hours. What is the most likely underlying etiology? Is it one, delayed clearance of fetal lung fluids, two, mother to neonate STI transmission, three, meconium aspiration, and four, deficient surfactant production? So I'll give you guys just a couple seconds to think about this one. And we'll go down the list. So delayed clearance of fetal lung fluids. What is that indicative of? Right, transient tachypnea of the newborn, fantastic. So this is a newborn, maybe 34 to 38 weeks is most common. They're born a little early, and for whatever reason, they still have some amniotic fluid in their lungs, and it takes a couple hours for them to get that out. That is the correct answer in this case. 
Now let's go down the list. Mother to neonate STI transmission. Does that make sense in a newborn that has essentially trouble breathing right after delivery and then it resolves spontaneously without treatment? Probably not. When I think mother to neonate STI transmission, I think of things like herpes and varicella, which wouldn't match these symptoms. And then if I think about lung pathologies, I think about chlamydia and uh, things that cause pneumonia. And those typically occur weeks later and would require some type of treatment uh, to resolve the symptoms. So in this case, it doesn't really match up. Meconium aspiration. Well, not a bad answer, and you should always think about meconium aspiration. So during times of stress, the newborn um, can aspirate the meconium, and um, it can cause a lot of issues. In the question stem, you might see that there's meconium-stained fluids. Um, on chest x-ray, instead of seeing perihilar vascular congestion, you're going to see really what looks like aspiration, so maybe like multifocal pneumonia, um, multifocal consolidations, things like that. Even meconium aspiration can cause really kind of an obstructive picture and cause a lot of tension in your alveoli. So kiddos can even actually have pneumothoraxes secondary to meconium aspiration. So that's a horrible complication. And oftentimes these kiddos, if they don't improve, might need to get intubated for airway protection. And then finally, deficient surfactant production. What does that make you think of? Right, neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. These neonates, whether they're preemies, whether they're a little younger and they have mothers with diabetes that's untreated and therefore uh, didn't make a lot of surfactant and uh, because of that they're having a tough time breathing uh, when they come out of the womb. So that's kind of just the rundown of those four answer choices. In this case, because the kiddo had just some vascular congestion, mild desaturations, and then it resolved after two hours, you think more likely uh, this is transient to kidney of the newborn. So this is actually neonatal respiratory distress syndrome here. And for the listeners at home, uh, what we're seeing is a chest x-ray with essentially bilateral whiteout. Uh, if you've got a CT, you would see those ground glass opacities. But if you see bilateral whiteout in a neonate, think neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. All right, the next question. Benefits of breastfeeding include, one, reduced risk of breast and ovarian cancer in the mother. So that's true. Two, improved childhood immunity. That's true. Children that are breastfed are less likely to get diseases such as otitis media, among other infectious diseases. There's actually a decreased chance of cancer as well, which is interesting. Three, improved bonding with the father. This is not proven, although maybe maybe it does uh, help, but in this case, not the right answer. Improved bonding with the mother due to what hormone? Right, oxytocin. And then decreased risk for diabetes in newborn. That's also true. Actually, breastfeeding decreases the risk for diabetes. Fantastic. The next question, a four-year-old child swallows something off the floor. Parents did not see the object. They remember having a nickel and a button battery conveniently right next to each other, but they can't find either now. The child is pleasant and asymptomatic. Which object would require immediate removal? The nickel, the battery, or both, or neither? This question stem is purposely very vague. And the teaching point here is that some objects such as coins can actually be monitored through observation, through serial chest x-rays, um, through serial KUBs, uh, to see how the coin progresses. For example, of course if they're symptomatic, if they're having a tough time breathing, if they're uh, producing a lot of saliva, if they can't eat, then you would take that out. But if they're asymptomatic like this patient, you can just watch. But there are some exceptions. Two of them include batteries, because batteries can cause erosions and ultimately very severe complications and magnets because let's say you have those fun magnets that you throw up in the air and they make noise together. Let's say you ate one or two of those and all of a sudden the magnets are clamping against certain tissues that can cause issues like ischemia among other things. So magnets and batteries, 
immediate need for removal. Otherwise, at times you can just watch if they're asymptomatic and pleasant. All right, what is the mechanism of the most common cause of mental retardation? Is it cerebral anoxia during delivery? Is it the presence of a third chromosomal copy? Is it the presence of a trinucleotide repeat expansion? Well, the most common cause of mental retardation is Down syndrome. So the answer would be the presence of a third chromosomal copy, trisomy 21. But what about the other answer choices? We have cerebral anoxia during delivery. That is a thing and that causes cerebral palsy, which is actually the most common cause of physical disability. So not mental, but physical. So remember that cerebral palsy, physical, um, oftentimes due to anoxia. And then the trinucleotide repeat expansion, that's getting at fragile X syndrome again. Remember, I think it's a CCG, CGG, trinucleotide repeat expansion on the FMR1 gene that causes the fragile X syndrome. And fragile X syndrome is the number one inherited form of mental retardation, but it's not the number one overall. The next question, a three-year-old female presents with multiple itchy annular lesions that change location every eight to 12 hours. This is an example of what type of hypersensitivity reaction. So you need to know what this is, and this is urticaria, itchy annular lesions. Sometimes they can be raised, maybe a little swollen. The key thing with urticaria though is it moves. Within 24 hours, they'll move different locations. So you have the patient circle the lesion with a marker, for example, and then it'll disappear and it'll come back somewhere else within 24 hours. So what type of hypersensitive reaction? Type one. And just to review the different types real quick, for the listener at home, we have a chart in front of us. We have type one, which is IgE mediated. Examples include things like asthma, any type of atopy, eczema, hives, etc. Then you have type two, which is that direct cytotoxic antibodies against the cell surface. So blood transfusion reactions are a good example, autoimmune Hemolytic anemia is another fantastic example. I think of good pastures uh, when I think about type 2 mediated hypersensitivity reactions. We also have type 3 where you actually create those complexes. The classic one is lupus. And then you have type 4 which is cell mediated hypersensitivity. And we think about a couple things like contact derm which you can see in our derm lecture, tubercular lesions, and graft rejection. So next question. Upon a follow-up visit, a one-month-old infant is found to have a white-gray opacity in his eye that was not seen prior. What is the next best step? So, is it to alter dietary habits? Is it to continue to monitor? Is it to limit strenuous activity? Or is it urgent surgery? So, what does this kiddo have? Or what should you think about in any neonate, any infant that comes in within a couple months of being born and having cataracts? Right, you should think about a sugar issue. In this case, an issue with galactose. And therefore, the right answer is altered dietary habits. And there's two deficiencies on the galactose pathway that we have to remember. And we have a little diagram here. So from galactose to galactose 1-phosphate, we have galactokinase. And that deficiency, galactokinase deficiency, is called a type 2 galactosemia. That one's not the most severe one. That's the one that we actually have here where really the cataracts are the presenting feature. On the other hand, when you have galactose 1-phosphate go into glucose 1-phosphate, that one is called classic or type 1 galactosemia. That one is a dangerous one that can lead to hypoglycemia, sepsis, hepatomegaly, um, obtunded kiddo, all really bad stuff. So you might get cataracts there, but really that's not the main problem at that point. So you just got to remember the classic galactosemia 
and then the galactokinase deficiency. Which one's more severe? Which one is more indolent? And in this case, we have a kiddo presenting with just with cataracts, so it would be which one? Right, the galactokinase deficiency. Fantastic. So, we have a four-year-old boy who begins using his arms when lifting himself off the ground and off his chair. The inheritance of this genetic condition is, so first of all, you need to know what genetic condition this even is. That's right. So this is Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and how is it inherited? Right, X-linked. And we give you a little hint here because it is a boy, so X-linked more common in males due to a mutation in the dystrophin gene causing abnormal dystrophin production. It's a frame shift mutation, and it is X-linked. All right. Upon delivery, a newborn male is noticed to be cyanotic and struggling to breathe. Physical exam is significant for a flat nose, wide forehead, and short upper extremities. What is the most likely underlying cause of these symptoms? So this constellation of symptoms should have you thinking about one thing, but let's get to the answer choices. Is it gestational diabetes leading to an elevated neonatal endocrine response? Is that the underlying cause? Is it obstructive membranes within the urethra? Is that the underlying cause? Or is it transfusion of blood between placental inhabitants? So, We'll start at the top. Gestational diabetes leading to elevated neonatal endocrine response. What does that have you think about? Right. When a mother has gestational diabetes, when the sugar is uncontrolled, and when the baby produces a lot of insulin, that actually prevents surfactant production and therefore can lead to babies being born with neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, which we discussed earlier. So that is not the correct answer here because we have a constellation of symptoms including a flat nose, white forehead, and short upper extremity. So the next answer choice, obstructive membranes within the urethra, is the right answer, and that's just another way of saying posterior urethral valves, and that is a valve at the posterior part of the urethra that prevents urine from going through, causing a backup. In this case, because the baby cannot urinate or has less urination, there's less fluid, it causes oligohydramnios when the baby is in the mother, and therefore causes issues that are known altogether as Potter's syndrome. Those include the flat face, the wide forehead, the short upper extremities, and what this baby is primarily here for is the cyanotic struggling to breathe. It's because of the pulmonary hypoplasia. You need that urine to be in the fluid. You need to have proper amniotic fluid, in which case the baby will actually inhale and will lead to pulmonary development as well. So there's a whole cycle of life that's prohibited by these membranes within the urethra. Final answer choice, transfusion of blood between placental inhabitants. That's actually a twin-to-twin -twin transfusion reaction. Uh, we have no indication that there is a twin here, but if there were two twins and one came out uh, much weaker than the other one, you would think about this transfusion reaction when the products in the blood of one infant goes to another in the same placenta. So it's really a placental failure, and one kiddo could come out much more dehydrated and ill compared to the other one. All right, and we have one more picture for y'all for this episode, here you go. So on the left-hand side, you can see a baby with Potter's uh, traits such as the flat face, the beaked nose, the low set ears, the downward slant to the eyes, of course, the pulmonary hypoplasia that we just mentioned, and the limb deformities, again, because they're in this tight space. On the right-hand side, you can actually see a normal urethra, and then you can actually see where the posterior urethral valve is. If that ever didn't make sense to y'all, now you can kind of see it anatomically. I know for me, I was always thinking posterior urethral valves, what does that even mean? And here you go. All right, guys, I think that's it for these first 10 questions. I hope you all enjoyed. You found some value in going over these questions. If you'd like to test them out yourself, uh, feel free to go to our website, buzzwordsmed.com. And we have plenty of practice questions here. It's a good way to get to our podcast as well and to see what other things we got cooking. So until next time, have a great day and a fantastic week. 
and we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye now.